Welcome to the Murderosity Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, and here we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. Joined on the other side by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing this week? Oh, I'm really good. I'm so excited for this case tonight. How are you? Oh, I'm, I am excited as well. I think this one takes place a bit closer to our region than previous episodes, or at least the regions we grew up in. And it being an ongoing case, just absolutely fascinating. So why don't you uh, lead us into the, the story this week? Where are we going? All right. Our next story takes place in Moscow, Idaho. It started on November 13th, 2022. Four bloody murders took place in an off-campus home that boasted six bedrooms on three floors. There were six people in the home that night, but two of them were not attacked. Their initials are BF and DM, but names have not been released to protect their identities. Well, so at this point um, in the last few weeks, I'm sure everybody has noticed, I'll give some fascinating facts about the town. Moscow doesn't have as much information about it as some of the others that we've discussed before. Currently, it is known internationally as the location of Christchurch and its associate ministries, uh, Cannon Press and New St. Andrews College, as well as the Lagos School. Other than that, the murders have really put it on the map. One of the few notable people is Bryce Callahan, who is a current cornerback for the Denver Broncos. Shameless plug, they are my football team. Um, But other than that, there's not a whole lot of really fascinating, oh my goodness, things that have happened here. It is another really small town with a population between 20 and 25,000. This seems to be... uh, Kind of a theme, small town America, maybe not as safe as uh, we like to believe it is. And it's right on the border of Idaho, right? Yes, it's uh, so Idaho and Washington State. It's it's right up there in the in the northwest corner, uh, kind of over by Coeur d'Alene. Uh, I've actually be. been to Coeur d'Alene. Have you? I, I have. I went on a vacation there once. I drove through there on my way to Fort Lewis, my first duty posting. It looked beautiful. Um, what did it, you think of yes. it? It was definitely beautiful and very. We were on a lakefront front property, and it was very pretty. That's. Uh, I'm. 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 I'm a bit jealous. I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> I do love the Pacific Northwest. We'll talk a more a bit. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I have a great love for the Pacific Northwest. It's absolutely gorgeous up there. It is. So. So you were telling me about these, the victims that were there. So, yeah. So the victims were Madison Mogan, who went by Maddie, Zaina Kernodal, and her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, and Kaylee on Calvez. Maddie and Zaina lived at the house. Ethan and Kaylee were just visiting. Kaylee was in Maddie's room on the third floor. Ethan was in Zaina's room on the second floor that night. So just a little bit more about their backstories. Maddie was 21 years old and she was a senior. She was a marketing major and a member of Pi Beta Phi sorority and worked at a restaurant called Mad Greek Restaurant where she was running a marketing campaign for them. She and Kaylee were best friends. Zaina was 20 and was also part of the Pi Beta Phi sorority as well as a marketing major. She was known to be positive, funny, and was well-loved. And she had a dog named Shoeshine. Ethan was 20 years old. He was a triplet. He had a brother and a sister. He was part of the Sigma Chi fraternity. He majored in recreation, sport, and tourism management, and he loved the NFL and country music. His siblings also attended the university, and his brother was part of the fraternity. 
Haley was 21 and a senior who majored in general studies at the College of Letters, Arts, and Social Sciences. She was a part of the Alpha Phi sorority, and she planned a trip to Europe for the following year and was going to move to Texas after graduation. And she had her dog with her that night. So did you ever go to, to college then? I did a few semesters, but I've never, I don't have a degree. Okay. Do you mind if I ask what you were studying or where you studied? I studied at Casper College and I was an English major. Ah, doing a podcast. I am shocked that uh, that I know, right? your, your interest. Yeah. What uh, about you? Well, I, I went to trade school. I actually went to Wyotech and I majored in automotive and diesel mechanics. Uh, right, I right think after. Mentioned. I, I, I think I have. And in fact, that might have been our first podcast when I was discussing being a vibrator technician. But it was very interesting. It was, I suppose it was a bit frustrating for me at times because I didn't go directly after high school. I went after I got out of the army. And so I had a bit of a different mindset. Like this was something that I had to do to, you know, pro- provide for my family and whatnot. I needed to do well. I needed to get good grades and, you know, get this education down. And I was there with like these 18 year old kids who were out for the first time ever. And yeah, it, it was, it was a bit, it was a bit interesting. It sounds um, a little frustrating. It, it could be, but what I did, I turned it around and I, I, I did uh, some tutoring and held study groups and uh, I'm still friends with a lot of the guys that I went to school with. That's awesome. Uh, the, the ironic thing though, is probably, I guess about four years after, maybe three years after I, I had finished my degree and 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 worked for a bit, I went back into the kitchens and <laughs> never really used it except to really just help my friends out. So, yeah, I wouldn't say it was a waste, but yeah, I have I definitely didn't use my education maybe as well as I should. <laughs> but I mean, it's 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 an interesting. It's good to have gone and and to have those college experiences, which I'm sure you can agree to, too, because, I mean, as I recall, didn't you just finish a novel as well? So I did just finish a novel. It's not published or anything yet, but I am letting it rest for a little bit before I hit the edit on it. Well, that's but again, you're you use the education that you had accumulated and acquired. And, you know, I, I am. I personally am really looking forward to being able to check this out once you're comfortable with it. So congrats on that. Thank you. You're welcome. So you said that some of these people had stayed over. They they went to a party that was nearby. Yeah. So that night, Zaina and Ethan had gone to a nearby party. They didn't get home until about 1.30 a.m. Maddie and Kaylee had gone to the corner club, which was downtown, and surveillance footage showed that they got food and a private ride at around 1.40 a.m. They showed up at home around 1.56 a.m. The two surviving roommates were at home by 1 a.m. There was a lot that happened. I can't even imagine staying up this late anymore. I'm old and tired all the time, but they they didn't go to bed right away. There were several unanswered phone calls made to Kaylee's ex-boyfriend leading up to 2.56 a.m., and they were made by both Kaylee and Maddie's phones. These calls were investigated, but the ex-boyfriend, who is also a student at the university, was not a suspect. Zaina received a DoorDash order around 4 a.m., and evidence showed that she was on TikTok at 4.12 a.m. And then one of the surviving residents was on the ground floor, and the other was on the second floor. She also heard Kaylee's dog moving around. 
So you said that the surviving residents were one was on the ground floor and one was on the second floor. Um, yes. Kind of makes it feel like either the murderer had something against the two women that actually lived in those rooms or that this was completely random. Yeah, it's a little it's it's weird to me that that they're the two surviving were on different floors and they, you know, we'll get into it a little bit, but the one of the surviving roommates even saw the suspect and so it does seem very strange that there was survivors when it would have just been easy to go through and murder all of them. Well, yeah, then you leave no loose ends. Uh, We're not saying that uh, we've thought about how to commit these murders. However, we have studied them, and there is a bit of common sense here. Right. Yes. We do not advocate for murdering entire households. No, we do. (laughs) So the surviving roommate heard a female voice say something to the effect of, there's someone here. She opened the door once, then a second time a short while later, and heard what sounded like crying coming from Zana's room. Then a male voice that said, it's okay, I'm going to help you. Which is creepy. More than a little. Yes. Considering what um, was going on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, nearby security cameras in the neighborhood that were less than 50 feet from Zaina's room recorded the sound of whimpering, a loud thud, and a dog barking several times around 4.17 a.m. When the survivor opened the door for a third time, she saw a black-clad figure wearing a mask that covered his mouth and nose, and she did not recognize him. She described him later as being about five foot ten inches tall and not very muscular. He was athletically built but had bushy eyebrows. He walked past her using the sliding glass door to exit the house. The survivor stood frozen in shock, then locked herself in her room. It's unknown whether or not he saw her, but a latent shoe print in a diamond style pattern was later found in the hallway. So the the timing of this, right? Like so she can she she sees the murderer. Seems shortly after he's he's finished, which judging from her DoorDash being there at four o'clock to what the last the the loud thuds and the dog barking around four seventeen. So put it between like four oh five and four twenty. That's only fifteen minutes for four murders. Mm-hmm. But she sees she at least sees this black clad figure. Doesn't know if he sees her or not. She closes the door, locks up tries to protect herself it does seem that at least he had thought about maybe going into her room with the footprints there did she like immediately call the police then or was she a bit scared or or what happened she did not call the police immediately the first call was made to 911 at 11 58 a.m so we're talking several several hours after the murders it was called in for as a request for an unconscious person for some reason they thought that that they were in the rooms alive, but just not answering, not responding. The call was made from from one of the survivor's phones, and she gets a lot of flack for seeing and not saying something. But, I mean, we have to consider the fact that these are 20, 21-year-old people, and they've never been in a situation like this before. That's true. It's it's easy to Monday morning armchair quarterback. Well, I would have done this, and I would have done that. but. I mean, there also has to be kind of a state of shock and fear given to it. Like, right. And if you're if it's four o'clock in the morning and you're tired and you're not really awake, what if, you know, you think that you're not seeing like, you know, did I really see that? Absolutely. And it's and it's a kind of, it's a house. I mean, it's a college house where there may be people coming and going anyway. 
Yeah, that makes a so, lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be unnatural for you to see somebody who you don't really recognize, but you have four roommates, so it's possible to think that it was just a guest of somebody and they were leaving. That's, I mean, yeah. I mean, they, they had just come from a party. You don't know who you meet there. and Right. Um, I will say the the ski mask aspect is a little odd. Well, I guess not a ski mask, but uh, a mask of some sort. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's yeah, it's it's tough. Definitely not one to throw condemnation at the poor girl because I mean this is traumatic for her no matter what. So and if we're being honest, from from what I have read and seen, her calling the police immediately or later an ambulance wouldn't have made the difference in this time in, in, in this situation. Yeah, exactly. So police arrived to find the door open with no sign of forced entry or damage to the inside of the door of the home. Nothing appeared to be missing. So this wasn't a burglary case of any kind. The survivors had called friends over because they thought that the victims were unconscious. So there were additional people at the crime scene and the 911 caller was not considered a suspect. So they, they called other friends over it so it could also point to well as you said they thought the victims were unconscious again this this is a bit of a you know watch law and order csi type thing but i would worry that that might contaminate a possible crime scene just a just a humble personal observation again you don't know what you'll do until it happens and you know being so scared and so traumatized you you wanted your support group you wanted your support system there with you but Definitely believe that the first call should have been to the police, not to their bestie. But right. hindsight's yeah. twenty twenty. So exactly, and and again, they're they're young and not really, you know, never been faced with really adult issues like this. This is very serious stuff. So I can kind of kind of see where I would rather have a support person with me if I thought unconscious versus. You know, if they'd known it was an active crime scene, they might have behaved differently. Oh, absolutely. And God forbid any of them are ever put through that situation ever again. But I I guarantee that they would handle it differently. Right. I have less than no doubt. So the police have showed up. What did the police find? So all four victims were pronounced dead at 12 p.m. They were believed to have been murdered between 4 a.m. and 425, which you mentioned. But we know that that. There was the DoorDash order and that there was TikTok open at 4.12. Talking, like like you said, about 15 minutes. All four victims were found to be stabbed multiple times in the torso and upper bodies, with at least one victim having injuries that suggested an attempt at defending themselves. All four deaths were deemed as homicide by stabbing, and all appeared to have been perpetrated by the same or similar weapon, a fixed blade knife. There was no sign of sexual assault, nor had the victims been bound or gagged initially sure if there had been one perpetrator or multiple people. Zaina's body was found on the floor in her room along with Ethan. Maddie and Kaylee were found in the single bed together and a knife sheath with K-bar on it was found containing a single source of male DNA on the button snap in Maddie's bed. So hearkening back to my military days to explain this really briefly, uh, K-bar is what the Marines call the, their bayonet, their combat knife as well. It's really not designed to do anything other than end life. People use it as like a a survival knife and whatnot. That's not 
its main purpose. It's designed to do one thing and one thing very, very well, and that's exactly what he used it for in this instance. Now, I'm going to ask the burning question that I know all of our listeners are asking themselves right now and praying that you tell us about. Tell me about the dog. What happened to the dog? So that night, officers found Kaylee's dog alive and unharmed at the house. According to the arrest warrant, the dog was found in the room initially, but was released when officers entered. So the dog was there alive, unhurt, as we all want. I I, I think that it's, it's horrible what happened, but we can all breathe a collective sigh of relief. When harm comes to to pets, animals, or, or children, like it, it just adds another level of, oh my God, to it. So right. I will be relieved that the dog's okay. Sorry about its, its master, of course, but at least there's that silver lining in this. Yes. Uh, so there was a lot of blood at the crime scene, obviously as well as cast-off blood, which would have meant that the perpetrator likely left the home carrying a lot of DNA and evidence of their involvement. The weapon was not found at the crime scene, which led investigators to believe that it was likely taken with the suspect. Police believed that the murders were planned and not a spur-of-the-moment hunt, which kind of makes sense with the fact that it was very targeted to four people and not, you know, obviously... You go in, if you go in to murder two people and you find two extra people, that's just common sense. You're going to eliminate them as well. But if, you know, if it was targeted to the two specific people that lived there, then that makes sense. Yeah, it would, it would account for the, the other two rooms not being attacked. It's, I mean, I think that in the case of the other two victims, it was a wrong place, wrong time. And right. That's unfortunate. I mean, as as the case evolves, we'll we'll most likely give an update and maybe we'll find out more. But as it sits, this is what we know. Yes. Detective set up a phone tip line and received over 15,000 tips in the case. And it initially wasn't determined whether this was an attack on the people or the home itself. So like if they targeted the house or if they targeted the individuals that live there. There was some speculation that Kaylee had a stalker, but that was proven to be unfounded. They never found definitive evidence that she had a stalker. Based on the surveillance footage of the area, a suspect vehicle was seen several times passing by the house in the early morning hours, followed by a final drive out of the neighborhood at 4.20 a.m., and they were speeding. Based on forensic reviews, it was determined that the vehicle was a white 2011 to 2016 Hyundai Elantra with no front license plate, which is required by the state of Idaho and Washington. And that's a fun fact. Some states like North Carolina, where I live, don't require a front license plate. But when when we lived in Wyoming, they did. So certain states have certain rules as far as that goes. Yes, I uh also was a resident of North Carolina for a bit and and Washington can definitely confirm the the the, the definite differences between the two on that. In fact, when when I got my my plate in North Carolina, I got one and it was more than I I, I actually asked, you know, where the other one was and got kind of some weird looks. And then it was explained to me that I only needed the one. So weird. Yeah, I actually put a. uh, uh, a gag license plate on the other one from my, I, I had just moved there from Germany. So I had uh, a fake German one that had my name on it. And I just oh, nice. that to the front, front to, to be a little fun, but yeah. yeah. So definitely different. 
Yes. Officers put out a bolo, which is be on the lookout for a vehicle that matched the description, along with multiple video feeds that recorded a similar vehicle and traced it back to a white 2015 Hyundai Elantra that had belonged to Brian Koberger. They pulled the driver's license photo, which depicted a man with bushy eyebrows. He was listed as six feet tall, 185 pounds, so he was consistent with their survivor and that they had seen that night. The perpetrator that description. Police pulled Koberger over and learned that the car had been previously plated in Pennsylvania, which does not require a front license plate, and he had family in Pennsylvania and was a student at Washington State University. So we keep coming back to him being in Washington. You said that you were up in Coeur Lane at one point. Did, have you ever spent time in Washington by any chance? I actually lived in Washington for a while. I lived in Spokane for a oh, year and a half. In Spokane. Okay, I, yeah. I had been through there. Um, I lived in between Olympia and Tacoma at okay. what at the time was Fort Lewis, which the town around Fort Lewis is Tillicum. Now it's a joint base, Lewis-McCord. There was an Air Force base that was right next to it, and they've just joined them together into one now. That being said, I'm sure you can appreciate this. Coming from Wyoming, the first night I got there, I spent the night in Olympia before I reported, and I'm walking around Olympia the next day, and all I could think was, this is so green. Oh, right. There is so much color here. And then there was the bays and the sounds. And that's also where I I, I developed my love, like practically for I I had always loved the idea of diving, but I actually got to do it there. Um, Wow. Puget Sound is gorgeous. The Pacific Ocean, San Juan Island. It's it's Washington's an absolutely beautiful and marvelous place. How did you find it? Up there with my daughter's dad. Uh, He had family that lived in there in the area. And uh we lived right by, I want to say it's Manitou Park. Okay. And it's it's a huge, huge park. It's got rose gardens and walking paths, and there's even a little cafe in there. It's really, really pretty. So that sounds perfect for you, to be honest. Yeah, it was definitely, I really miss, I really miss the Pacific Northwest and the trees and the greenery, and it, it's definitely a fond place for me. So I do, uh, I have a, a friend that currently still lives out there and we talk regularly and I express my, my jealousies of the, the weather up there as well. Cause while it does rain a lot, it's not like it's a steady downpour, you know, and right. it makes everything so green and you have a lot better weather days than people would give it credit for. So right. I know she's listening, and- so she knows who she is. <laughs> <laughs> and the winters are so mild there compared to Wyoming. So mild. But I mean, you could throw a dart at the globe and hit a place that has <laughs> milder winters than Wyoming. But I, I, I do remember that, like, the if they got hardly any snow at all, like roads closed down and everything, you know, slowed way, way down. Right. Yeah. And uh, in Wyoming, they're like, buckle up and just get into work. That's it. You're, you're looking for the out of staters because you're going to have to tow them out of the ditch. So. Yes. Yeah. Loved it. Loved the the Pacific Northwest. Loved Washington. Good to have another little tidbit from you about Spokane and the beautiful, beautiful parks there. Yeah. So did uh, the University of Washington, was there anything that police could get about our suspect from there? Yes. 
So based on information provided on the Washington State University website, Koberger was a PhD student in criminology. Officers learned that he held an undergraduate degree in psychology and cloud-based forensics. They also learned that he wrote an essay when he applied for an internship at the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022. So in his essay, he wrote that he had an interest in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. He also posted a criminal survey on Reddit, which asked participants to provide information to, quote unquote, understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision making when committing a crime. So I'm going to pause here on this. I have looked at the Reddit post. And I know that you have as well. Yes. And to be as non-judgmental on this, because he may not have been working alone. There may have been other students or professors that helped him with this. But to say that in hindsight, this has not aged well is a bit of an understatement. It's it's really creepy to read it in the context of who made it. Now, if I had just read this and not known anything about him, I might have thought it was a little weird the way that some of the questions are worded, some of the answers are worded, some of the direct bluntness about it. But in hindsight of understanding what Koberger is accused of, because this is an ongoing trial, innocent until proven guilty. However, the court of public opinion is always in session. Just putting this into the possibility of what he may have done makes this Reddit post incredibly uncomfortable to read in its entirety. It um, does, yeah. And it's a long, it's a long questionnaire too. It's not just a few questions. It's very much what age were you when you last committed a crime type of thing. And like, yeah, exactly. So this isn't something like you get a phone call. Hey, I'd like to ask you a few questions about the upcoming election. And you're frustrated that it's taken 10 minutes like this. This was a very long thought out thing that would require time, a very long time to fill out and to answer, because not all of them are even multiple choice. Like you said, what age were you? Uh, He asks a lot about personal feelings, like how did you feel committing this or that or you know, how do you feel about yourself if you were to commit this or that? And it's it's a rough read in hindsight. Yeah, and we'll post the link to it in the show notes so that you don't have to dig for it. You can just click on a link and find it. What we have is a it's a copy of the post, so it's not the original post or anything, but it's still still worth a read. And let us know what you think in the comments. You know, did it make you as uncomfortable as it made us or are we just becoming too sensitive given the line of our podcast? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Koberger had just finished a semester at the University of Washington State University, and he'd been a teaching assistant there. Less than two weeks before the murders, he met with faculty members who were concerned with his behavior. He was then terminated from the role based on unsatisfactory behavior, including, quote unquote, failure to meet the norms of professional behaviors and his interactions with faculty. So we're already seeing kind of a pattern of odd behavior, not just with the Reddit post, but clearly in in terms of his assistant teaching, which, to be honest, growing up, we all had to deal with teaching assistants in high school or elementary school at some point in time. And to be perfectly honest, I cannot remember one that wasn't overly friendly, I guess, almost. 
that were were nicer than our normal teachers were. Uh, maybe it's because they hadn't gone through all the suffering that the teachers actually had by then. <laughs> right. So so just imagining how bad this guy must have been to make the faculty that uncomfortable because it's nothing to do with his his teaching ability or even his interaction with students. It's literally right. the faculty that has issues with him. Right. Now, you had mentioned earlier how they had seen his car around the house during certain times. Yes. We have seen in other episodes that we have done that police will use cell phone towers to ping phones and whatnot. And in fact, you made a comment a couple uh, a week or two ago about how if you're going to do this, leave your cell phone at home. Right. Did the police try to do anything like that in this case? They did. They pulled cell phone records, but they didn't show Koberger's phone ringing off, pinging off of any cell phone towers on the night of the murders. But on the night of the murders, the phone had no signal. So it was either in airplane mode off or in an area with no coverage. That was that occurred from 2.47 a.m. to 4.48 a.m. When it was back on or back to having cell reception and pinging off cell phone towers, it was shown to be traveling to a nearby town. Investigators matched the cell phone towers locations to the surveillance footage to show that it was likely Koberger's vehicle. So they used security camera footage and the cell phone pinging to kind of correlate, hey, this is the same vehicle that we saw driving past the murdered house even though he thought he was slick by turning his cell phone off, at least for that period of time or in airplane mode. And again, it's in that, that witching hour, that murdering hour that we time frame that we have established as well. Right. So you're kind of seeing like, we're not seeing a case like we did last week of America's dumbest criminal, but I think we're seeing one of someone who's too smart for his own good. And yes, tripping himself up in in terrible ways yeah the day after the murders Koberger's phone pinged off the cell towers near the home of the murders between 9 12 and 9 21 a.m and then it returned back to his home address police used records and traced his phone to the area of the murders at least 12 times prior to the murders from june of 2022 to november 2022 most of these were late in the evening or very early in the morning before dawn so Again, though, we're we're seeing kind of a pattern like isn't it known that a lot of criminals like to return to the scene of their crimes afterwards yes. to see it? And also seeing that he's been there at least 12 different times does also lend itself to a premeditation of sorts. So right. all of these things just keep on adding one brick to the wall, it seems. Yes, Police used a combination of cell phone records and CCTV footage to show Koberger in the area of the murders, as well as a traffic stop and various other activities like grocery shopping to prove that he was the driver of the suspected vehicle in the murders. You know, it was Thanksgiving around Thanksgiving. So it was they were they were on a break from school. And so he Koberger headed to his family's home in Pennsylvania, and he was pulled over twice by Indiana State Police in a five mile radius for speeding and tailgating. Allegations originally stated that the FBI directed the police to make the stop, but they've denied those. And then detectives used public genealogy database to identify a partial match to someone who shared familial that was on the K-bar sheath that they had found that DNA. They traced the DNA back to him by matching it with DNA found on trash that was recovered from the Pennsylvania home as well. 
So one of the one of the big things in this case, and one of the big things that the defense is arguing with, has to deal with this genealogy DNA, or what they call investigative genetic genealogy. Mm-hmm. In fact, on August 18th, they had a six-hour hearing about it. And the argument really was whether the state should hand over all of the DNA records that led to this or not. So the thing about it is, is the it's it's really new. It's only been in use for the last five years. But what a lot of this investigative genetic genealogy is, is they can take the DNA from a crime scene and then look at something like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, places where people have put their DNA out there publicly. Mm-hmm. And then because it's a genetic genealogy, it doesn't necessarily have to match Koberger. But if one of Koberger's relatives have done this and it comes back as a partial genetic match, that's what they're using to try and show a correlation. Because it's not a 100% match, but there are enough things there to match it in a generic sense enough to kind of get the ball rolling and then later as you said they they found trash in pennsylvania that they were able to then trace back but they used it as an initial way to show that he was a suspect however it is important to note that the police and the prosecution both have said that they did not rely on this investigative genetic genealogy to get a judge to issue or to execute any of the search warrants Four witnesses testified on the defense's behalf to try and get the records released, saying that the release of the IgG records should be a minimum practice standard. However, Idaho law, um, they have a discovery law, which means that the state is not required to hand over those documents. They have presented it before a judge, and we're currently still waiting to see how the judge is going to rule which will be a landmark decision going forward for how prosecutors and police can use this new technology or this new way of determining probability. It is important to note that IgG does not represent scientific facts or provide evidence proving his guilt or innocence, but it gives them a path to start down. So it's it's a really fascinating and really really interesting new way of discovery investigation but it is so broad and so generic that this ruling will really determine how much it can be used similar to lie detector tests it can give you a baseline of what you can do but it won't provide a definitive proof of innocence or guilt that's interesting have you ever done a dna test like a genealogy dna I have not. I've thought about it. I uh, My partner has done one, and it came back with some really, really interesting results that we still talk about today. But it allowed her to learn that a large part of her family came from Poland. She's German. She was born here, raised here. But her father's mother was actually from Poland, and she didn't know that. And somewhere along the line, she is 0.1% Italian. So Somewhere <laughs> way back when, that entered into the uh, the familial gene pool. I would be fascinated to find out them. I wasn't always, but yeah, as I get older, I'm kind of curious. Uh, I know what I've been told, but I've seen so many people get tested and find out like what their family histories were were not reliable. So, have you ever done one? 
I have. I did Ancestry and I, I'm a adopted on my dad's side. So I have two dads. And so I was really interested to learn because my family is full of adoptions on like a single parent side. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit of a mixed bag between who's blood rela- related and who isn't. And so I was able to actually help one of my cousins discover who her dad was just based on some familial knowledge and things like that. So it was really interesting. And I still I still get matches. I did the DNA test about maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less, but I'm still getting family matches on Ancestry. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's definitely interesting. And I've gotten to know some family members that I have never met before. You know, I've never known in my life before because just because, like I said, when you're adopted, then you don't get to know family members like because they're no longer part of the family and and things like that. So. Absolutely. I that's that's absolutely fascinating and good on you for being able to reconnect someone with their with their parent. Were you able to match with your biological parents then both or. So I so I actually met mine. I had a cousin that found me on MySpace way back in the day um, when I lived in Washington, actually. So I met my biological dad back in, I think it was maybe 2007. Yeah, that Um, sounds about the right time for MySpace. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So it was very interesting and, and I've gotten to know him and everything. And so it's just makes my family bigger. And I like that. That's awesome. That's a much happier note than the route I went with the genealogy DNA just a moment ago. So let's <laughs> yes, add some, a bit of happiness to that. So were the authorities suspicious of Coburg at this time or like, were yeah, they- so yeah, they, they monitored him and he was last seen at, or he was seen at his parents' home wearing surgical gloves and putting trash into bags and then putting those bags in the neighbor's trash can which is suspicious as all hell. The items were recovered and sent to the Idaho State Lab for testing. Koberger also cleaned out his car inside and out very thoroughly. On December 30th, Koberger was taken into custody and a search warrant was carried out. Authorities found a knife, pistol, black face mask, and ID cards inside a glove that was inside a box. When he was arrested, he was seen wearing gloves and putting trash into Ziploc bags. That's uh, that's that's as close to a smoking gun as um, right as you really can get. I wonder, I, I know that uh, we both looked this up and there wasn't any like super information on it. I'm sure it will come out in the trial and whatnot. But I wonder what trash from this crime scene did he take all the way across the country? Because Pennsylvania is not next door to Idaho right. or Washington. And yeah. to get all the way over there, hiding it from his parents, putting it into Ziploc bags, putting it into your neighbor's trash can, like, that's that's all pretty extreme. I mean, I could see maybe not wanting to have evidence close to the crime scene, but if that's the case, he had to be sweating bullets every time he got pulled over in Indiana. Oh, right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so... Koberger was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and one count felony burglary, and he was appointed a public defender as he nor his parents had the funds for a lawyer. On January 3, 2023, he was extradited back to Idaho and taken to the Lata County Jail, where he was held without bail. On May 17, 2023, Koberger was indicted by a grand jury on the charges. 
In May of 2023, he refused to enter a plea during his arraignment. His attorney said he was, quote unquote, standing silent on the charges and the judge entered a not guilty plea for him. The prosecutor's office announced that they were seeking the death penalty. So it's an interesting thing. Idaho has some really unique statutes when it comes to their death penalty, which Mm -hmm. they have had ever since it was a territory back in 1864. Now, there was a period of time from 1972 to 1976 when the Supreme Court invalidated every state's capital punishment laws. The case that that brought that about was Furman versus Georgia, something we can go into at a later time. But from the time of from 1864 until 1972, Idaho executed a total of 26 people. Now, Idaho, one year later after the 1972 case, they did create new capital punishment laws in 1973, which took effect immediately in 1976 when the Supreme Court stopped uh, the the halting of executions. So it was kind of like those uh, those states that had abortion laws on the books that would go into effect when and if the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It was the same thing for Idaho with the death penalty. They had these laws ready to go once they were allowed to use them. Personally, I feel that that's kind of a, a messed up way to go about things. You're basically trying to find a way to circumvent uh, constitutional law at that point. Humble opinion, not going to go too much more into the politics of that, but I think that says enough. So the thing is, though, is even though they, they had the laws go into effect and they were backdated to 1973, no one was executed in, in the state of Idaho until 1994. And so... The last person executed in Idaho was in 2012. It was by lethal injection. And there are eight people currently sitting on Idaho's death row. Oh, wow. This this year in March, Idaho became the fifth state to allow execution by firing squads, citing that sometimes it's hard to get lethal injection drugs, which is another thing that just absolutely blows my mind. Yeah, that bores me. The, the reason, however, that at the initial hearing that prosecutors had to announce that they were seeking the death penalty is in Idaho, you, are, you have the right to a speedy trial, which we will get into in a little bit later. But if that's the case, then you have to be tried within six months of your arraignment. And in the state of Idaho, you have to be given notice that the state will seek the death penalty within 60 days of your plea entering. So oftentimes the prosecution will do it at the same initial hearing just to avoid any questioning about it. Uh, Now, there have to be certain criteria met to be able to pursue the death penalty, and he hits two of them. One of them is that the murder was committed during another serious crime like arson, rape, robbery, burglary, which is why it's important that they hit the felony count of burglary. Even though there was nothing taken, he entered a domain without permission. So it, it's it will be interesting to see where that one goes. However, the murder, the other one is that the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, cruel, manifesting exceptional depravity, which they're also trying to prove. 
So if they cannot prove that, or if the burglary count falls through, then he will not be eligible for the death penalty, and they'll likely go after life imprisonment. The other thing is, is the jury has to unanimously agree that he deserves the death penalty. It can't just be a simple majority in that case. It's the same right. as the conviction, which not all states have that. It can be a majority for sentencing, not for guilty, not guilty, but for the sentencing process. But sure. Idaho is pretty strict on it. So that's uh, that's Idaho's capital punishment laws in a nutshell. Oh. Yeah, small nutshell. So this is an ongoing case. The judge has issued a gag order. So there's probably a lot more to be known, but it won't come out until the trial starts. A date has not been set, but it will likely be until 2024 at this point. Yeah. So they did move it back. Originally, it was slated for October 6th, which at the time of you guys hearing this has long since passed. However, Koberger's defense has asked for an extension and he has waived his right to a speedy trial. Originally, they were told that they would have to submit witnesses, evidence and things to sustain his alibi which I don't think we touched on it, but his alibi was. And the reason that his car was seen is that Mr. Co that his defense attorney says, Mr. Koberger has a long habit of going for drives alone. He would often go for drives at night. He did so late on November 12th and into November 13th, 2022. Mr. Koberger is not claiming to be at a specific location at a specific time. Cool. He doesn't have to because we have him on CCTV showing where he was at a certain place at a certain time. And right. we also see him in that place at least 12 other times on CCTV. So the fact mm -hmm. that he liked to take drives around here, to me, humble person that's observing this isn't really helping his case. But the, the, uh, the defense attorneys have said that they need more time to gather all the information and to wait on the judge's ruling about the DNA release. So that's one of the reasons that they're trying to get that evidence overturned and to get it back to them. But his phone records have shown him being in that area many times, driving late at night. Totally not creepy. Right. We are we are currently awaiting to see first what the results of uh, what the judge rules as far as the DNA goes. And then when the judge will set a new trial date. Mr. Koberger is also requesting that all cameras and recording devices not be allowed in the in the courtroom, not uncommon for suspects or or defendants to request that, but it is worth noting. But his defense attorneys are are, are stalling this a bit because they say that they, they do think that they will eventually have some evidence that will exonerate their client so much so that they are seeking to have the grand jury's indictment overturned, which would result in him not going to trial at all. But they say that's dependent on what happens with this DNA ruling. So keep your eyes and ears open and see see what happens to that. And um, we'll provide an update at a later episode on what happens and the result and everything. Absolutely. We, we've discussed this in previous cases. Any idea what's going to happen to the house or... Yeah, so the house where the murders occurred was donated to the university and it's going to be demolished. And there's actually scholarships in the names of Maddie, Ethan, and Zaina that have been created. And there's a memorial garden for the victim's plan. Okay, well, that's that's good. As important as it is to, 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 to think about convicting 
whoever it was that was guilty of these heinous crimes, more important to remember the victims whose lives were taken so young. Right. Exactly. And speaking of young victims, what do we have this week for our missing persons case, Rebel? So our missing persons case uh, takes place in Ferguson, Missouri, and police are looking for a seven-year-old girl that was reported missing earlier in the week of September 21st. Yes. And so the girl was last seen going to the store with her non-custodial mother, and she was never brought home. Police say that uh, her name is Zyla. Zyla Nice. And... The police say that her grandmother has custody of her and she was with her mom, Tyrika Turner. And so last time she was seen, she was seen wearing a lime yellow outfit with a unicorn on her shirt. And she's four foot five with black hair and brown eyes. She's African-American. Anyone with information can call the Crime Stoppers, as you've said before, is always a great option they can contact 911, the nearest law enforcement agency, or the Ferguson Police at 314-522-3100. And this is a, a rather new case. If if there's yes. any updates, we will, of course, update in a future episode. But if anyone knows anything, please, 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 this is a, a very young child. Get in contact with law enforcement as quickly as possible. Just make sure she's safe and that everything turns out the way that we hope it does. Again, better to find them now than have them be an episode of our show. Exactly. Well, Rebel, this was a, a fascinating and yet another ongoing case. I hope that you know this comes to a resolution and we'll keep we'll keep everybody updated as this case goes on, of course. But thank you all for turning in. Rebel, why don't you give them the rundown of where they can find and listen to our podcast? Yeah, so if you have any cases that you'd like to be aired, whether they be missing persons or murder, mysterious, macabre, any of the above, feel free to reach out to us at murderosity at gmail.com. We can also be found on all the socials. Um, just search Murderosity or Murderosity Podcast, and we will pop up, and you can follow us and you know, get updates from when our podcast airs, which is Fridays. And every one of those like and follows really do matter. The yes. algorithm is incredible. And, you know, we we would very much love to continue providing this bit of information every week. Well, I think that's going to do it, at least for us for this week. I hope that you all learned something and had a bit of uh, and and enjoyed the presentation. Well, Rebel, we'll catch you next week. All right. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Bye bye.